on. We're on. Good morning, everyone. Okay, so we are ready to dive into this week's lesson. Um, as we were chatting just a little bit prior to starting this lesson, we were discussing the fact that we have been moving along in the book of Daniel little by little, and we're getting close to the end now of, of our full study. We've really covered a lot. What I would like to do to open us up, and especially since we have a guest and we will probably have also a new student uh, yet again tonight, I have another new student joining us. Um, I would like to just really quickly kind of do um, an overview explanation of what it is that we have covered thus far in the book of Daniel, starting with the, the, um, who our author is and what the author's purpose is for writing. What, who is it that wrote this book? And why did Daniel write this book? Does he show us through the things that are repeated the most? What is his primary message? That's it, that God is sovereign. That is the bottom line. And we come to see that by the use of God's name in this book. And what is his name in this book? God, the Most High, God Most High. And um, what do we have as a key verse, a major verse for the book that kind of pulls it all together for us in a way that's real concise? That's right, 2, 21 and 22. You want to read that for us, Kristen, if you have that handy? Sure. Um, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells within him. Okay, that, that is awesome. I just, the longer you move into the book of Daniel, the more that verse really does say it all, right? Because what we have seen um, prior to this are all these visions that kept give, being given, right? To both King Nebuchadnezzar and now to Daniel. And those are the things that are going to happen historically. Those are the things that pertain to those things that are coming in the future, right? And in particular, what is this emphasis Placed upon what people group is he speaking of most often? Israel. Israel. And he refers to the Israelites in this book as what? What is another synonym that's used for them? Holy ones. The, well, the holy ones and Jerusalem. your people and the saints, right? So when he refers to the saints, the holy people, or your people, he's speaking of the Jewish people specifically. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was uh, lesson five, I, get a, I gave kind of a short, <laughs> I say short, you know how my short is, my short is half an hour, uh, but I gave a little uh, backdrop to what it is that was going on with Daniel and his people and why they were where they were at and what, why had God chosen that nation? What was it that God did? Why did he do this with, with Israel? Why are they so special? A, a light for who? For God. for God. Their purpose, their design purpose is that they will proclaim the glories of God, right? That is the entire reason that God created the nation Israel to begin with. He, he over and over says he doesn't pick out Israel or choose Israel because they're special in some way in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, they weren't even a people 
before God came on the scene, right? God called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans. He made him a promise of a land, a seed, and a nation. And through time, quite a bit of time, right? He built that nation up through uh, uh, Abraham having a son and then through the others in the family that would have the son. And pretty soon we had a full nation, right, of people. Um, this week, we had one verse in particular that we went to that I found very interesting. Let's see if I can find it. It's going to be in my extra stuff here at the back. It was in Psalm 78. We looked at verse 49 in our homework. Um, and it says, he sent, he sent upon, he sent Upon them, his burning anger, fury, and indignation, and trouble, a band of destroying angels. Now, that was a verse taken out of its context for you to drop in and to see spiritual warfare that was going on, that, and that it was who that sent it? God did. God sent those angels to do the destroying work that God determined needed to be done at the time. Now, the backdrop to that is the whole book of, of, of Psalm 78. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. And I know you're going to be glad of that because it takes a, it's a long one. It takes quite a bit of time. It's front and back on this sheet and then half of another sheet. So it's very lengthy. But what I want to say to you is this basically in a nutshell is my devotional from uh, two weeks back. I was just so excited when I came across it. I went, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I told them. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> so he said it first, not me. <laughs> But he goes, in this one, he says, um, I'm going to read just some excerpts. He says, but tell to the generations to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob. Now, what he really means by that is he's saying, through Jacob, I established a testimony about me. As I work through this nation, I am revealing to the world who I am. And the point is not to save Israel because they're special. The point is to save all men who will come to me in faith. All men of the world. Is, we see this very clearly in the book of Daniel where God pursues Nebuchadnezzar, pursues Nebuchadnezzar, pursues Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. We see that as time progresses. Um, but in here he goes on to say um, he wants... Israel to teach his, their children about him, right? That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So the whole purpose for Israel was that they would be this testimony to the world and that people would come to salvation. Why? Because God desires that no man dot there you go that no man should perish but that's right that they would all have everlasting life okay so he throughout this whole thing he goes on and talks about all the things that they did in in spite of what god was doing for them how they failed him how they sinned against him their failure but at, there's a section in here as you move down to the bottom he says but but I, God, I chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. But he preceded that by saying this. And if you pull this out of context, you miss what his point is. He says, um, he drove out the adversaries of Israel, right? He put, he put on them an everlasting reproach. 
he also rejected the tent of Joseph, and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Now, what does he mean by that? Do you think he means he, he just hates Joseph and he hates Ephraim? No. So now there is actually another verse somewhere else. He says, I hated Esau, but I loved Jacob. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Co consider that in the, in the view of the mind of God loves all men. He wants all men to be saved. What did God do in, through the tribe of Judah, through his prophetic utterance concerning them? Okay, Daniel to begin with. Ultimately, though, there you go. There you go. Jesus. It's always Jesus. Remember that. The answer is Jesus, God, and love. <laughs> Jesus, God, love. You got it covered. Okay. But says he, but he, trobe, he chose the tribe of Judah and Mount Zion, which he loved. Why did he love Mount Zion? And what else happened at Mount Zion? He loved it because it was uh, here that he promised a lamb would be slain on Mount Zion. Do you guys remember that? Genesis 22:14. remember when Abraham took his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah? And he said, I, uh, he says, in this place I shall provide. In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, is the translation in, when you dig it out, right? And what God was saying to Abraham is, no, don't slay your son. I am going to provide a son. In this mountain, I shall provide. It's Mount Moriah, which is at Mount Zion, which is in that terrain, that area of Israel. That's where the temple is built. That's where Jesus was slain. And so he says, I loved Judah and I loved Mount Zion. Not because they're special in any other way, except that God had said, here is where it shall be provided. And only here. There's only one way to God, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but through me. So when God identified through a prophetic utterance that in this place I shall provide, and then when he fulfills it, that's what makes that place special. Because it, what does it do then when people see that God fulfills exactly what he said? What do people do when they see things being fulfilled? They start to trust him. Exactly. All of a sudden they go, wow, God does it. He said it and he did it. And therefore I can put my faith because every time one of the, one of the things we talked about earlier also was how prophecy is God's signature across his word that he is, he is who he claims he is by fulfilling prophecy that proves that God is exactly what we said in Daniel 2, 21, 22. He is the one who raises up kings because he's sovereign to do it. And he puts uh, kings down. And it says he, he also reveals the hidden things. He, he pro, uh, um, pronounces before the end, the end, right? He pronounces it at the beginning so that when it comes, we look at that fulfilled prophecy and we go, wow. What other God can do that? No other God can. And all through Daniel, we kept seeing that over and over. There's no God like Daniel's God, right? Okay, so um, you need to go and look at Psalm 78 just on your own and read it through those perspectives. When he makes these statements, think about it through the perspective that God is not hating on anyone and that God is not in, um, enjoying the, the bringing of consequences 
if you love me, I will bless you. If you, if you disobey me, then I will curse you, right? If you obey, if you disobey, those were the conditions of that covenant he had with Israel. When you read this, consider that, and that his goal is salvation to the world. So this was, I thought this was really awesome when I, when I came across that. And of course, I can't just read 49. I had to go back and start at the beginning because I was like, well, this is interesting because it was kind of like pulling it out of context and just look at that one verse alone. It seemed, um, I, I wasn't quite sure what her point was, you know. So when I went back and read it, I got very excited. Okay. So now this, we want to go through really quickly and see concerning, um, hold on just a second. Let me get my page open here. Okay. Now, keep with author Daniel. Key verse or subject is God most high and that he is sovereign and he's all knowing. Those two qualities in particular are the, are the cream that flows to the top, right? Um, so his, his purpose is to reveal that to us. And God's purpose for Daniel is to reveal what? What is he trying to reveal to Daniel for all of us? The future. The things that are going to happen in the future, again, to make a prophetic utterance and for us to be assured as things are fulfilled. Now, how much of Daniel has been fulfilled so far? The map that we were given way back at the beginning of our homework, remember this? How much of this map has been fulfilled? All of it. <laughs> All of these hundreds of years are done. And we now can go back in history and look at these things and say, yep, check mark, yep check mark right okay there goes the head there goes the shoulder and arms there goes the belly you know we're now we're all the way down towards towards the the knees basically of those legs and we're waiting for the time when the to 10 toes are going to appear on the scene right those have not yet come we don't totally grasp the full picture of all this yet we're going to go into revelation after this and we're going to start plugging in more details on this but the important thing to understand is God has said it's going to happen. Will it happen? Yes. When God speaks about the fourth kingdom, what kingdom is that? We know Babylon, then what? Medo-Persia, then Greece. Greece. So we know those. And then the, the last one was Rome. Rome. And that was the time when Messiah the Prince came that we, we've already studied through Daniel 9's prophecy, right? And, now, and also, when did the ten toes happen? Which kingdom? The fourth kingdom. Yeah, it's not a trick. <laughs> I wasn't trying to trick you. It's still the fourth kingdom. So what we now know is the, the Roman Empire was in place when Messiah the Prince appeared. And it's going to be the people of the prince who is to come. In this case, this prince to come is speaking of whom? The Antichrist, right? The end time king that is going to come. And the people of the prince to come did what to the to the city of Jerusalem? They destroyed it in what year? 7080. You guys are so smart. Golly, that, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Don't you are you impressed with yourselves? Yeah. I'm very impressed with you. All right. So that kind of lays out very shortly, obviously, and very um minutely, I guess, uh, all the things that we have studied thus far. We've put in a lot of hours and a lot of weeks. So now we're approaching this one, these last three chapters. And what have we discerned about the last three chapters? Um, 
in a literary form, what is chapter 10, 11, and 12? Should they have been broken up? No, they should not. Technically, they really are one whole thought because what is it that happens in 10, 11, and 12? What, it opens in 10 and it tells us what? What's going on in 10, 11, and 12? That's exactly. He's being, he's uh, a man, a certain man dressed in linen has appeared to, isn't it fun? Now that you see that you go, you pick up on that. He's a certain man. He's not just any old man. He's a certain man and he's dressed in linen. Now, uh, was it last week we did the comparison or was it the week before of the last man? In, last week. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the man in linen. And we compared the man in linen with what other cross-reference that parallels it? Revelation chapter one, where a man in linen also appears there, a man dressed in white. And, and who is the man dressed in white in Revelation? Jesus. And it's absolutely, it's, his name is the word of God, right? Okay, so that makes it very clear. Now, why do we know that that man in linen in Revelation one is a, is a comparison of apples to apples with Daniel? How do we know that? Okay, the description is so similar, but there are still people who, even though they look at that comparison and description, they still say, uh, what had we done the weeks before concerning the little horn? When we were trying to find cross references that looked like the same person in the same time, and we were looking at that time phrase, time, time, and half a time. Where was that time reference found? That's right, in the Revelation account in chapter 12 and 13, right? And it, and it actually more clearly defined it as 42 months and 1,260 days. So through comparing unfolding events, what that little horn looked like as far as his character and characteristics, the events that he was taking place of, who he was being aggressive toward, how he spoke of God through blasphemous ways, right? Through all of these comparisons, in the end, we said, oh, absolutely, Revelation is talking about the little horn, right? And therefore, we were able to validate for absolute certain it was the time, same time frame, same people, same things were going to be happening. He just had a different name. At the end, he's called the beast, right? And we call him the Antichrist. But he's spoken of as the beast in, in Revelation. He's spoken of as the little horn in Daniel uh, 7. And we came to see these are exactly the same re uh, references of time. They're speaking of that same in time event in that day, right? If that's true, then in the flow of the thought with uh, Daniel, when you get to the man dressed in linen and you're still speaking in the same time frame, would it not be legitimate to go to, to Revelation chapter one, same time frame that's being spoken of, and again make that comparison? Yeah. So if it's apples to apples for the little horn, it can be apples to apples for the man dressed in linen as well. It's just another apologetic way of saying, is this a legitimate thing for me to assume that because the description is almost literally tit for tat right down the line, you can almost say, yep, 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 yep. Right. They all, they line up perfectly and they both are speaking of the same time. Plus the little horn over here and the, the beast over here also right down the line, the same. 
So we now we can now say, I think very confidently, we are speaking of the same time frame, we're speaking of the same people, both of them, not just one. If one is, they both can be, right? So that's just one more reason why I continue to say the man in linen, I believe, is this um, is Jesus. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Okay, now when we look at it from the perspective of um, hold on a second, there's one more thing I wanted to pull out here. That's the wrong one. Where is it? Oh, I already had it out. <laughs> okay. There are a couple more places where you see a man in linen that I think are very interesting that you might want to go look at. Just on your own, it will be extra work. I realize that. But uh, for those of you who did Ezekiel with me, you've already been through this. But Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10. So it's pretty simple three chapters. Again, there, there appears a man clothed in linen. And again, this is very interesting. Listening to the wording on this one, Ezekiel 9, verse 2, he says, behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them, remember, it's kind of like in, in the Revelation account, in the, in the center of the candlestick stood one among them was one this one is so and among them was a certain man dressed in linen and with a writing case on his loins and they went in and they stood beside the bronze order uh, altar then the glory of god of israel went up from the cherub on which it had been we all now know what a cherub is right to the threshold of the temple and he called to the man in linen at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the man who sigh and groan over the abominations which are committed in its midst. And that man's gonna be marked for what? What do you think he's being marked for? If he's one who groans over abominations being done before God most high, why do you think he's being marked on the forehead? to be preserved, to be saved, right? And who is our savior? Jesus. So again, address a certain man dressed in linen. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong and, and I'm willing to say maybe I am, but I'm, I, you have, we have to draw conclusions based off of all the collective knowledge and knowing that the word of God does not put one statement about anything in just one place and leaves it at that. If it's really a legitimate thought that you're coming to, you're going to find validation for it in many other places. So there was that one. And then when you keep moving, though, go on to um, look in chapter 8, 9, and 10 and look for that man clothed in linen and just do some looking for yourself to see what you think about it as possible additional cross-references to that conclusion that we made last week okay and um and the other thing i do want to make extremely clear is even if you don't see the man in linen as being jesus it does not change any of the facts pertaining what he came to do with daniel what he told daniel that god is the one that had sent him right so that all remains true regardless of whether you think of it as just an angel or whether you see it as being a pre-incarnate appearance of christ but one of the things I also saw was in this progression of unfolding events is how God um, sent a vision to, an uns to a Gentile, right? And sent Daniel then to give interpretation. Then he gave a, 
a, a, another vision or two to Daniel and he sent angels. But in this, even in the second one, the angels that appeared, one of them, there was a man standing above the waters of the Ulai Canal. And he said to Gabriel, Gabriel, give this man understanding. There was some authority if you never saw it, right? So whoever this one who was above the waters in that one chapter had authority over Gabriel, right? And he was directing him to give understanding. All right. Then you move into the next chapter, first to a Gentile, then to, to Daniel and an angel comes within. The last one is Jesus himself comes and he comes and he calls Daniel. What, what name does he give Daniel? A man of high esteem. He esteemed him. Why did he esteem him? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today when we look at the subject of prayer, right? Because what we saw in that chapter nine in particular, and then moving into 10 is Daniel being a, a constant prayer warrior. Now we've seen this through the whole book of Daniel, but it really is strongly emphasized as we move toward the end. And by the time we get to 10, he's caught, he is making sure that Daniel understands God highly esteems him. And for this reason, who came for a personal visit? The man dressed in linen, a certain man. And one of the other things that I think was a strong impression upon me for this being something other than a simply an angel was the lengthiness of the description given about him. When we see our description about Michael, we did this this week, right? It, it's like how much? One little sentence and one little sentence over here and that's it. You get like two points on Michael and Gabriel. You don't even get a description of him. You just get to know what he did, right? And yet this certain man dressed in linen, this much, a whole paragraph on just who he is and all the details of it. And each one of those words that you look up does nothing but declare the glory of God. It talks about all the qualities that make him holy and righteous and, uh, and, and highly valued and uh, sacrificial, you know, all these things. It's just a, oh yeah, very much. Yeah. Well, and the people with them wouldn't even see it. Yeah, right. I'm out of here. You, yeah, no, exactly. And it happened with um, Paul on the road to to Damascus. Also, the other men did not see that vision, but he saw the he saw the Lord, the risen Lord. Right. Okay. All right. So that kind of sets context again and gives our visitor and others who have not been with us so far kind of where we're at. Just a little bit. It's just a tiny taste of it. Now, what we want to do is look at our subject for this week. Now, we had, a, I think, just a, a really good mini topical study. That is, in fact, what you did this week. If you don't know that, if you go back to your how-to book in chapter three, which is called Focusing in on the Detail, in there, they talk about marking keywords, right? And whenever you mark a keyword, what, what defines a keyword as being key? How do you know it's key? Repetition. There you go. Repetition. That's the first most obvious thing. How often it just keeps being repeated. Any other thought? What else might make it key? There you go. Exactly. Like, for instance, if, if God Most High is mentioned once, we always know God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are key. But even subject matters 
can be in, in, in the same manner be key, even if they're not repeated over and over and over. If it's, if it's any subject that by word or, or phrase is removed from the text, it leaves the, the whole rest of that chapter devoid of meaning. Everything that's being said or, or conversed about seem to support that one word. And if you take that word out, you're kind of lost as to why, you know, what, are, what is even being said in the text, right? So keywords are, are um, found just by looking for those repetitive things or the importance of them. But once you find a keyword, then a keyword literally then is a subject that you need to study, right? And in this uh, week's work, what we've been doing is looking at this subject of spiritual warfare, the angels, right? The demonic forces, the good forces, God himself, all the things that are going on in the heavenly realm. I just want to pose a quick question for you. And I think I actually posed it last week, but I'm going to put it out there again and see if you pondered on it any. Um, what do you think would be the point to the man in linen showing up to Daniel and saying, hey, Daniel, I was busy. I was doing spiritual warfare with the prince of, of Persia, but now I've come to see you. Now, <laughs> if you take it from that kind of attitude, it doesn't make any sense at all, right? It also doesn't make any sense why he mentions it at all, unless the bringing up of this subject was significant in some way to address Daniel's prayers because he was sent to God concerning the fact that he had been praying. Okay. So what do you think? Okay. Yeah. So you, so you went right where, okay. Yes. Because literally the fact that he mentions that he was in the spiritual battle with the principalities of the air, the fact that he even mentioned, it's not like name dropping, right? He's not like saying, oh, I was at the officer's club with the, the, with the, the senior NCO's wife or what. I mean, you know, we're not name dropping. This man, this man, this certain man dressed in linen was not name dropping. He was not saying, I, I'm so important that I had a really big job, but I quit my job just to come to talk to you, right? No, <laughs> he's not really. I mean, because you got to, you have to weigh this all out and say, okay, First of all, everything that's written in the word of God is written for instruction of some kind. And there's a point to it. Sometimes even the most minutest little thing, if you look it up in a word study and do a little bit of cross-referencing, you start to go, wow, I didn't realize it meant that, right? So the fact that this subject matter of, of a warfare going on in the principalities of the air, that this subject is brought up, there has to be real meaning behind what's going on here and it has to in some way address the purpose for his coming for him to have even mentioned it to Daniel so what did he say was the reason he came well we know he was withstood but why did the man in linen come to Daniel okay so he heard his prayer and he and he came. As a matter of fact, how soon had he heard the prayer before he, he actually came? Was there a time delay? 21 days. There was a time delay going on in there. So he let us know there's a time delay. So there must be also some kind of information concerning this time delay that might be helpful to all of us, right, in understanding the bigger picture. Um, and when he came to, to Daniel to give him understanding, what was this understanding supposed to do for Daniel's heart? 
What's one of the things? Yeah, peace, encouragement was primarily to be an encouragement to Daniel. And uh, one of the things he tells Daniel not to do is to not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And he wants to calm Daniel. The fears that he was expressing through his prayers, the worry, the stress, the anxiety, because of all these things that God had shown to him through these visions, he does not want Daniel to remain in that state of anxiety and fear. So he's come to him now to calm him. And the first thing he tells him is, be calm, Daniel. I was doing spiritual warfare. Now, how would that calm Daniel? Okay, maybe to let, and, yes. And the overcoming of the warfare, you know. I mean, they came. Yeah. They can't not hold him back. There you go. The, the conclusion of it is, is who's, the, who's got the upper hand in what Daniel, that little bit of information that Daniel's been given, who's got the upper hand in that spiritual warfare? Who? God does. God does. But in particular, the man in linen. And then who's this cohort that came to help him? Michael. So Michael and this man in linen are doing some kind of warfare. They seem to be on top of it. Right. Although he says I was being withstood for 21 days. So we need to kind of iron that out a little bit. Right. But still, what we do can't conclude, at least just surfacely, is he was withstanding him. It doesn't mean he was being defeated. Right. Um, and that there was some kind of strategy in, in the whole process. It wasn't like I just dropped everything and left. It wasn't important. It was not a battle of significance. It wasn't that it was not needful to have the spiritual warfare but, but that it there was calculations made right there was planning made in the in the response before he just dropped everything and left he made sure that certain things were handled right okay so with that going in your head now let's go back and look at what we did learn this week then we looked because the subject of angels comes up we are doing topical study and we did we looked at um, well, you tell me, who, who were the ones that we looked at this week in your homework? Yeah, yep, okay, Gabriel, Michael, fallen angels, and Satan himself, right? Okay, so we have all these subjects we need to look at, and is there a distinction between Satan and, and the other angels that are seen in this, like Michael? How do we see their dynamics between Michael and Satan? Yeah, so they're not friends. They're on opposing teams, right? Opposing forces. Okay, so with that in mind, let's move on then and just take a look at some of the details about what we learned about angels. Because the subject of angels is something that we really... It, one of two things is true about each uh, individual. Either you've gone overboard <laughs> and you are so obsessed about angels that you have forgotten who is the power player in this pic big picture spiritually, or you pretty much have just said, eh, you know, you don't want to know about it. You're happy to be willfully ignorant, right? Do you think that this week's homework in any way affected your perspective about the spiritual warfare that you saw? That's a little tougher question. I know it wasn't in the homework. Sorry. 
but but when you looked at the subject of spiritual warfare did you walk away at the end of the week feeling better about what you know or more fearful about what you now know better because at the end we see who it is who is who is really in charge so another subject that came up for us is an authority or a chain of command is which i like i like to use because i'm a military wife right chain of command is in place and it's very clearly marked out for us where, where that is i listened to a sermon just this morning as i was getting ready from discover the book ministry and um john barnett was talking about the spiritual warfare in the heavenlies and and how the angels must basically bow and and ask for permission and they must um um well let, let's let's cover it through the homework and let's see what what it is that you discovered on that um so the very first thing you saw in daniel chapter 10 so chapter 10 through 12 it shows there's a contrast that's given to us right it's pre presented very clearly but also a little bit obscurely who what is the contrast going on in there in that book what do you see as a contrast contrasts are a huge way of showing you a major theme and of uh, allowing you to to see what the opposing sides of things are there you go there you go exactly good girl martha the man in linen see there's the teacher's pet man in linen <laughs> versus the uh prince uh of the kingdom of persia Okay, and that's in uh, verse 13 and 20 is him. And this one is seen in 11, the man in linen is presented. So there's a contrast there. And concerning the, um, the man in linen, who sent him? There you go. Do you see a verse on that? Okay. Okay, sent by God, 12, all right. I, I had 11, but it could be both, okay. And what would you call the opposing side? If this is the one who's sent by God, what is the opposing factor that you're seeing here as a contrast in this book? Some are being sent by God and others are doing what? They're withstanding God, withstanding the power of God or the will of God. In the spiritual warfare that you see going on up there, if he's standing against the man in linen, then you know he's, in, and if the man in linen is with God and being sent by God and isn't basically in God's camp, then this one who's opposing him, who is struggling with in this, in this battle, then is one who's in opposition to God, right? So it's those who are sent by God and those who oppose God. <clears throat> Okay, so th that's our primary contrast in this book. Now, let's break it down and look at the, the subjects that are brought up to us. The first one in day one's homework was Gabriel that you were to look at. What did we learn about Gabriel?
Okay, so he was sent to give understanding or instruction, both, right? Uh, and we see that in, actually, we saw that in uh, two chapters, didn't we? So he sent repeatedly, not just once, but you might even want to add in here, sent repeatedly. to Daniel. So that's in chapter, we see it in 816 and we see it in 921, right? And in 921, he actually makes sure that you understand it's the same Gabriel, doesn't, don't, doesn't he? he? He says about it what? Yeah, the Gabriel, the man I had previously come to me in a vision. Okay, what else did we learn about him? Oh, I love that. He stands in the presence of God. And what is your verse on that? Okay. When in Luke 1, um, she took us then on a little further down past in 19, for 19 to 26, right? Mm -hmm. What did you learn there? What did he do there? Yes, so he was sent, okay? He was sent. Actually, this one was to Elizabeth and um, Zacharias, but then later to Mary. So all, both of them. We didn't cover the Mary one, which really surprised me. I kind of thought she should take us to the Mary one. The fact that he was sent to announce the coming of the Messiah, right? You shall give birth to a, a Savior, right? And he, we didn't cover that one, but he was sent to give a message. Again, sent by who? sent by God. Okay, so these are both in Luke 1. I'm just going to put that. Sent to give a message both to Mary, to Zacharias, both of them, and to Elizabeth, and also sent by God to Mary to give her a message as well. Okay, now, did anybody do a word study on Gabriel? I know it wasn't in the homework. Girls and boys. <laughs> <laughs> You know how I feel about this. <laughs> okay, Gabriel, let me just tell you what else you could have learned about him. He is called an archangel. He is the angel that God used to send messages of great importance. I wish I could write all this on the board because it's really good stuff. Um, he, uh, he's uh, called a warrior of God, or he's also called man of God. Isn't that interesting? Even though he's an angel, he's referred to as a man of God. Emphasizing, however, in his name, Gabriel, is strength or ability to fight. I didn't know that because I always thought of Michael as being the warrior, right? But he also is considered a warrior who has strength and ability. Now, why is that significant? What it, why do you think the emphasis is placed on that he has ability to If he was sent by God to do a mission, whatever the mission is, you you name it, you think of it. Get there. If we have all of the spirit's work, I guess we have to get through to do what he 
Yes. Okay. And the fact that he can tells you he has the ability. So where does that ability come from? God. So who, the one who created him gave him the ability, the power, the strength, the authority, all those things to be able to do whatever God sends him to do. Guess what's going to happen? He will do it. It will be done, right? I think that's pretty cool. So he's, he's a, uh, you, I guess I could put it here in black, but uh, God created him with ability to do whatever it is that God told him to do, okay? I love that particular point myself. Okay, now let's look at Michael. Isn't it interesting, too, at this point, if you compare this list of what we looked at on Michael, and these are all, the, we didn't do every single cross-reference, but we did do, I think, most of the ones that we have available to us about Gabriel by name. Look how short that list is. How much detail is given to us about this very mighty warrior, who, by the way, is the one who God uses to send messages of great importance, the ones that really are the gospel messages in many situations. This is about the forerunner of the Christ who was going to be born, which, by the way, was a prophecy that was made and it had to be fulfilled, right? And he sent Gabriel to give that message to Elizabeth and Zacharias. Then he sends him to Mary to announce the coming birth of the Savior, that she would give birth to the Son, right? And so knowing that, that his, his value, his position, his importance in the role that he's playing as, a, as an angel, and yet this is all we get on our list. I, in a way, to me, that's pretty profound. Because So what, what might you draw out of that point? Yeah. Yeah. The one that God wants us to focus on is not the angels. What are we told about angels? And we didn't even look at this, but what are we told about things concerning angels? What should we not do? Do not worship them, right? And later when we move into Revelation, the angel will even speak that to John when he's speaking to John. And he says, no, don't worship me worship God. So when the, when John falls down to pay homage to him, to give him honor and respect, and he's fearful, right? When he falls at his feet, the angel says, no, 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 don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours, of God. Why, why did God need to use he sure could have. Oh, that's an interesting question. Why do you think? Sometimes he does appear himself. Yes, he does, because he sends himself. Because <laughs> some angels are fallen. Okay, take that, take that same thought pattern and bring it into the physical world of human he's beings. Like, he's like the CEO. So he's like up here and he's like, okay, you go do this, you go do this. I can do it all. Yes. I don't want to do it all. That's a great insight. God can do it all yeah. if he wanted to. So the very fact that he allows his spiritual beings that he created to join with him in the work that he wants to accomplish, is there a parallel in that for us? Because God does not need us to spread the gospel. 
He wants us to. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, what's the very first thing God did? What did he tell Adam and Eve to do concerning the garden? To subdue it, to till it, to, to tend to the garden. He gave them work to do right from the beginning. So what does that tell you about the designed uh, purpose of both angels and men? What are we designed for? Work is one of our qualities that we need. And if we are made in the image of God, what is God all about? Work. That's right. Right. So, I mean, this is, again, another side subject that could come up as you look at, at angels and what we're learning here is why would God use angels when he could have just done it himself? He could have sent another hand on the wall. Right. You've been waiting the balance and found wanting. Or, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted to, but he doesn't. He chooses to use his angels. I think that's a powerful point good 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 catch on that one okay let's look at michael what did we learn about michael page 49 in your homework or 44 rather he is the chief prince um he is the great prince right who stands guard is that the one you're talking of Kristen. one of the chief princes and that's in 10 13 okay thank you and he says there he's the great prince what do you think they mean by great prince okay okay yeah so somehow he seems to be um, up the scale of other angels in some way. He has a position that seems to be exalted, right? One of the things he says to us in 12.1 then is what his work is that he has been given is to what? To stand guard over the people, over the sons of your people, right? Um, in Revelation 12.7, Michael and his angels wage war, right? So, like he's the head of you know this army. That's right. Do you remember last week? I think it was last week. I've I've gotten the weeks are all messed up. We talked about the host and what a host might be, mm -hmm. and we talked about there's you know God has hosts of angels. He has hosts of men. He has hosts of the saints. And we talked about us being onward Christian soldiers. You know, we so these this concept of hosts have to do with being a band of warriors or a or a collection or a group of subordinates under a leader right and so here we have again now michael who seems to have a position of authority amongst the hierarchy of the angels then he is one who is a chief prince over the uh, over others the great prince who stands guard over israel oops Okay, so that one's in Daniel 12, 1. What did you learn about his title in Jude? Did you, verse 9 in Jude? He's called the Archangel. Did anybody look that up? 
Yes, chief. I love that. He's chief, chief of the angels. It translates as rule over and reign over. To be chief, to lead, to rule, one who commands over angels. So he's, so just by the definition, the word study on archangel, and by what we've already observed about Michael and the things that he's doing, what we do see for sure then, um, amongst the, uh, the angels in heaven, there is a hierarchy. There is, in fact, a chain of command, right? And the fact that it's also uh, given the title, he's not just the archangel who's in charge, right, and over the angels, but he's an archangel of the Lord, meaning who is he submitted under? The Lord. So in the hierarchy, he's at the top among the angels, but who is over him? The Lord. Okay. Oh, yeah, that was right, Jude 9. Okay, um, this one was very awesome, awesome also to look at. Look at Jude 9 again. Somebody have that open by chance that they could read Jude 9 for us? Maybe Steve can. He's going to look it up. Very interesting. What in the world was that little verse about? Why is someone contending with the body of Moses? Well, first of all, the fact that it's called the body of Moses, what does that tell you about Moses? He's dead, <laughs> right? Okay, we're talking about his body. Uh, there's a battle between Michael and the devil for the body, right? Obviously, the only purpose for that would be that it has some kind of an effect possibly in this world, right? That the Satan would want to do something. What do you think he might want to do with the body of Moses in relationship to what's going on on the earth? It seems like Michael wanted it. Michael wanted it to be buried but buried in a way that what? Do we know where the body of Moses is? There, there you go. That's exactly right. I believe that's right. Because here's the deal. What happens with people concerning objects like uh, the Holy Grail and the, the cup of the whatever, the Ark of the Covenant even, or, or the Shroud of Christ? Or when we have items, what do we tend to do? They become objects of worship. And so the body of Moses, if, if Satan had had his way with it, he somehow would have gotten it into the hands of other humans who then would have immortalized it. Yes. And then it would have. Yes, exactly. You would have pilgrimages going on there and visions coming out of it and people laying on hands and having experiential things going on, right? So it seems like that seems to be the message there, that there was a battle that went on. Who won? Do we have the body of Moses? <laughs> Do we know where the body of Moses is? No. Who won? Michael. Thank you. <laughs> Michael did. Okay. So he actually battled on behalf of an object which might have become a stumbling stone to who? the people who what would maybe come into faith at some time in history, right? We see even the, the remembrance of Moses 
destiny of man death as well as we have you know Abraham and, and Moses you know, almost like they were following them and not following God mm-hmm. yes the fact that he battled for the body of Moses also tells us was he present at the time when Moses died yeah how long ago was that and what was the distinction between when that event with Moses happened and when Daniel happened was there a period of time between that quite a lot of time so what does that tell you subliminally about angels they've been around a long time and they don't seem to die because he keeps being there you know he's there from the beginning almost okay so he was he was present at death of Moses and was present in day, in Daniel's days say all of these things kind of uh, um, evolve out of a process of saying, well, wait a minute, what about this? Or, or that, oh, I didn't think about that. I mean, but when you stop to ponder and meditate on the word, that's when all these additional insights, insights will start to kind of come out of it. Um, another time when he is going to be present is revealed to us in um, Daniel 12, 1. What does he say he's going to be present for? There you go. He is going to be present, and, and it says that he will rise up. Is that not what it says? Someone read that, 12. Now, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. There you go. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Okay. What time is that? What time frame is that? That's the tribulation. That's that time, times, and half the time that's being mentioned, right? As a matter of fact, if you go into Revelation 12, 7, it's, it again reinforces that time, times, and half the time at the end of the age. So Michael, who was around for the days of Moses, was around for the days of Daniel, will also be around in the days of the end. Pretty cool, huh? So I'm going to put again Daniel 12, 1 and Revelation 12, 7. And I've run out of room on my board. I don't have room to write down the stuff about this angel. Can I just talk you through it? Will that be okay? I need a bigger board, but since we're in my house and not at the church, <laughs> we're limited. <laughs> so we work with what we got. Okay, so now the next thing, the next subject matter you looked at after, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, go, go for it. It means, I know because I named this, so I have to answer. Oh, good. It means, who is my God with a question mark? Oh, I love that. Hebrews. Yes. Right out of Hebrews. Yes, some places you just see who is my God, but that's putting wrong. Michael's not like God. Who is like God? So he's sub, he's show through his name is showing us a, a subjugate, subjugate subjugation under the authority of God is God being greater. 
very cool. Who is like God? Nobody. When we did, I know we did it. We looked at Hebrews chapter two, right? Didn't we do that? Um, okay, Hebrews one. Okay, sorry. <laughs> All right, go. we looked at so many. Tell me what you learned there then about angels. That kind of goes along with what you just said. I love that. So he is there to serve those who will in inherit salvation. So who is that? Humans. What does that tell you about angels? They're there to help us. And concerning salvation, they don't receive salvation. They are either of with the Lord in, in his camp or... They're in Satan's camp. One of the two, right? Okay. No, that's right. In Hebrews, it goes makes it very clearly that angels are not those that that have been endowed with that position of power and authority that is given to the the Son. And who is the Son? He's purely the 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 physical incarnation of God Himself. He is not just equal with God. He is God right? And he sits at the right hand symbolically as a picture for us to understand what God did for us is to send him in the form of humanity. He came in flesh for our benefit and to do all those things that we don't have time to talk about, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. That is a really good point. Okay, so what it says then is, if you back up in the in the in the verse, who's making reviling comments concerning the angels? The devil. Well, he disputed with the devil, and read the whole. Th go back and read a few verses earlier. At Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what we're seeing in all of Jude is the rebellion, rebelliousness on the whole. And it affected both man and angels. And here it's speaking about men's rebellion. And these men are men who do what? These men revile. There you go. They speak abusively. They revile against angelic majesties. Why is that a dangerous thing for a human being to be doing? What so when you when you get to the verse that that she was just pointing out that Susan was pointing out to us, the angels do what? Yeah, they don't even rebuke their fellow angels, the fallen angels, who by the way are now under the power and authority of them because God is at the top, they are right below God, and then the angels, you know, but yet they don't revile those angels. They have enough wisdom to know. You don't mess around with great power. Well, so what is... That, but I think it says it doesn't, they don't pronounce judgment. Judgment is the Lord's. So that's, that's right. Not, yes. Okay. So right. God deals, you know. So they, they seem to have a, a sense of understanding their position, mm -hmm. right? In Peter, First Peter, I think it was, it talks about those who did what? Go ahead, Martha. They don't tremble when they revile angelic majesty. So they sound like they're humans. They're unrighteous. Oh, there we go. Okay. Something far greater than themselves. Right. Than 
Right. Exactly. So what are we learning then about our position or relationship to angels at this point? You better be respectful of the fact that these are powerful beings. But the good news, <laughs> the good news is what? Jesus has a, above all, he's far above all authority. So yes. She's made a point later where with him, you know, there you go first john that's right so so knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world meaning the spiritual realm of darkness or of those who are possessed by it or working from that perspective that we have something within us that is greater and more powerful and stronger um but what we do know in second peter 2 9 to 11 is those angels are greater in might and power than men are. And so I think knowing that, understanding that angels on the whole are greater than us, but the piece of it is knowing they submit to a, the all-powerful God who is God most high, who is the sovereign of the universe. Um, so men despise authorities and they even dare to revile angels, but God's angels don't revile men. And Michael did not revile Satan, right? So we see that in 2 Peter 2 and also Jude 9. They respect and obey the authority of God. They also rely on the power of God themselves. They understand their position under God gives them the authority and the power that they have. What should that tell you and I? Where do we get our power and authority in, to deal in this world? Through Christ. He get because we're his, because... His spirit dwells within us, and he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, then our power also. And as long as you are humbled in, in that position in your thinking and understanding, then you are safe, right? Because God is the one who will keep you. Um, um, so they are angels are those who are sent to be ministering spirits to men of faith, those who will attain to faith. They serve those who will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1.14. What about their abode? What did we learn about that in Matthew 18 and Jude 6? Page 45, I think, maybe. I'm not sure. Yes, they continually see the face of God. So positionally, where are they? They're in the heavenlies, right? We know that they are literally in the presence of God himself. Um, and Jude 6 says about the ones who did not keep that position, what did they, what does it say there in Jude 6? Do you want to read that for us, Susan? The angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode were kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Wow. Okay. Now that we know what the great day is and we know what that judgment is, is that days, those days of tribulation, there are angels who did not keep their abode. And I looked that word up. It's dwelling place, habitation, or home. Their, their natural home was to be in the heavenlies and, and before the face of God. That was where they were supposed to dwell. And some of them didn't. We know that because we looked at Revelation 12, right? What happened in Revelation 12? There was a battle between Michael and Satan, right? And what did the tail of Satan do? He swept away how much? A third of the stars. Okay, so now you couple that with what it says in Jude. Some of those who did not keep their abode, but they were cast down, right? 
And it says about them what? They're kept in the eternal bonds under the Wow. So there are some of them, some of them are out free roaming the earth doing their dirty deeds, right? Say that respectfully. <laughs> Please don't come. <laughs> but there are also some who are kept in chains until that day. There must be something really significant about some of them that they are meaner and more dangerous than others. And God discerns this, right? Just like he weighs the heart of men, he obviously weighs the, the, the uh, personality and the demeanor of the, of the angels as well. I don't know if they have a heart, but anyway, <laughs> that's why I'm dancing around that word. Um, but he, he examines them as well. And some of them he put into bondage. And what did we learn about some of them later? What's going to happen with some of them? Do you, well, you know, I'm trying to find it real quick here. I'm sorry. But I know it says it's in uh, Revelation. I think it's in chapter nine where some of them, it's one of the, um, they're bound, but then they're released. There you go. Okay, tell me what reference that is. It's not, Revelation 9.13. 9, okay, Revelation 9.13. Okay, and what day was that on, homework? Uh, three. Day three. Okay, so everybody now knows. Day three, page 49. <laughs> now we got it all. Okay, um, so what he tells us there is there are going to be some angels that are bound, and it, and it relates over to what Jude has told us, that some of them are bound for that day, that great day. And so some of them apparently are so bad that God had to restrain them and is going to allow them to come out and do the, the whatever it is that God wants them to do is going to allow them to do, right? In order to accomplish God's purposes concerning judgment on the unrighteous. Very scary though, isn't it? Okay. Um, in Revelation 12, 7, we also see about uh, Michael and his angels. Who are they battling there? The dragon. And who is the dragon according to the first part of chapter 12? Satan himself. So they're battling against Satan and his angels. Michael and his angels are battling. What is the time frame of that battle that we're looking at there? What is the outcome? What's going on? He gets, Satan gets cast where? Down to the earth, where we right now, we know he's in the heavenly realms. He's some, according to Job, we even know that he goes before the presence of God to get permission for in certain situations. But so at this point, now they're going to be cast down. And when they get cast down, what happens? What do they do? He only has a short time. And who does he persecute? The woman and her children. Now who? Where is that on our timeline? We've looked at that. The woman gets persecuted. That's right. It's in the tribulation. It's the last three and a half years of that tribulation period. When he is going to come against the woman, he says in that passage, you get a little more insight. We're going to see that when we studied Revelation more thoroughly. But it says he pours out water like a flood to destroy the woman. But then the earth opens up and it's sucks it swallows the water in order to allow the woman to escape and she escapes to the wilderness 
And by the way, another passage says for a time, times, and half a time. So we're starting to see, see how the little pieces that we've picked up on in Daniel, that when we get into Revelation, we're going to go, uh-huh, I know exactly when that is. We're all starting to already put the pieces together. I love that. You mentioned Job, but like she gave us Luke 22, 31, which is probably for me the most comforting one about, you know, Satan demanded permission. Yes. Yes. I always try to figure if I went to my mother and demanded permission. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know, I know. seems like I looked that up. Um, I did look that word up because when, when I saw that he demanded permission, I thought, what does that mean? And, and it really did mean that he was with an expectation that he would get his own way. And did he? And did he sift Peter like, yes, he did. So it, uh, there was a demanding and the demand, the, just in the, the, the uh, original language, that must've been the Greek there. In the original Greek language, then the, the inference is that he did get what he wanted. So he demanded it, meaning he got it. And so God did allow him to sift Peter. And, but he had to do what in order to do that? Yeah, it's right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do we know about the angels that are evil that want to do us harm? There are boundaries that are set. God sets boundaries and he only allows certain limitations. So some of these other verses that we come across as we're reading now, it, it, I think it's really going to be insightful to you. When you read them, you're going to see the subtlety in there where it shows that there's a limitation that's put upon certain situations until the course had run. In other words, like that kind of a statement, the course had been run. And when their course was run, we looked at that one concerning... Um, uh, Daniel 11, when these ones who fight against um, the rather small horn, and it says until their course had run, meaning there was a limitation set of time for them to do what they were going to do and for the accomplishment of what God was going to allow to have happen. And then it would be finished and God would then send some other event to happen to either intervene in or whatever. In the case of this rather small horn, we're going to look at him in Daniel 11. Um, the things that he is going to do, they are so similar to the end time king. They are so familiar to us almost. You can get sucked in and think, oh, that's the, the Antichrist. And I can't tell you how many commentaries I've looked at, even just recently. Again, they keep putting him down at the end of the age. I'm like, but this is the Greek empire. How do you do that? <laughs> he came out of the same empire that... that um, Alexander the Great formed and the four generals came from him and then the, there's all the so we're going to get to look at all of that starting next week I think okay what else did we learn about them anything that you want to cover well, the other, one verse I came across not that she gave us but you know I was reading it in first uh, Peter 1 12 okay uh, read it for us it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Okay, so what does that tell you about angels? They don't know salvation. 
and they don't know everything either. They don't know every, they're not, so they are not omniscient. They have limited knowledge, right? As a matter of fact, one of the things that you can kind of discern even just through Daniel is that these are angels who God has instructed and then sent to give instruction, right? God has given them the insight. Uh, you see the man over the Ulai River or canal saying, give him understanding. But apparently that, that the implication there is information has been given to them so that they can give it to him. But what you see there, what verse is that again? Okay, 1 Peter 1.12. It shows or reveals to us that angels are not all-knowing like God. But they long to, but they long to just like you and I long to. Isn't that interesting? So we see a dynamics at work here then that's very similar to us in relationship. Is it no wonder that God often calls them the sons of God, but he also calls us the sons of God? Because we are his children. And the angels are also in similar manner, his children, but we have very distinct roles to play in the universal, you know, heavenly realm. When we go to heaven, we have an abode that's being prepared for us. The angels, though, are servants, and they're sent there to, to minister to us and to, and to help us, to serve us, and they do the will of God. They only go where the Father sends them, just like what Jesus said about himself. I go where the Father sends me. I do what the Father is doing. I say what the Father is saying. You know, my words are not even my own, but what God has given to me. So you see Jesus in the human form representing to us or showing to us the position that we should take before God the Father as being humble and being um, subjected under his authority right? And under his leadership and ruling that we should submit in that. Those angels who did not lost their place of an abode. Their abode was, they were cast out of it and became the fallen angels. Okay. 30 more minutes. Okay. So that's, look. well, we've kind of already been covering both sides. Of this. Let's just look a little bit more now than about the evil forces, what we've learned about them. Okay. So spiritual concerning spiritual warfare in Daniel chapter four, now last week I gave, I sent out to you my chart, right? Mm -hmm. um, that gave you all the places in the book of Daniel where I saw spiritual appearances of various kinds. In Daniel four, we see four men in the fire. And what, what appears? One who is like the son of the gods. Now that was Nebuchadnezzar's terminology because he didn't understand who the son of God was. And really neither did the the jews at that time um what did that appearance teach us about the spiritual forces that are going on what had nebuchadnezzar done what had he done with those three men he threw them in the fire to destroy them right but the fourth man in the fire showed up and what happened they weren't even singed not even the smell of smoke was on their clothing. So what we see in that spiritual warfare is there is one who is greater than the evil forces that were at work in this earth through Nebuchadnezzar. So in Daniel 4, we see one like a son of man, a son of, how does he say, a son of the gods, he says. He protects the three men 
from destruction. Uh, 425 is what I put. Am I wrong? Okay. Okay, sorry. 325. I need to fix that on my... Your chart, your chart is right that you sent out. Okay. It's just this chart is wrong. <laughs> that does not surprise me. I do that often. Okay. Um, also, we see God doing the same kind of protection of Daniel. What happened in Daniel 6... When Daniel was thrown into what? The lion's den. Who threw him there? Darius. Well, Darius did be under objection, right? But who was it that actually put him there? Those administrators who were jealous, right? And so we again see evil forces working through these men on earth, right? Um, trying to destroy Daniel, who it's no, is it absolutely no wonder that that um, Satan and his demonic forces would want Daniel dead. Yeah, because of all the things that Daniel was involved with. So we see in Daniel chapter six, um, God sent his angel to protect Daniel. I almost think that also was a pre-incarnate. Possibly. I mean, I, I don't know that for sure, but I, it seems like it could have been. Okay, so that's what we see on the one hand. On the other hand, then we also have learned uh, concerning spiritual warfare itself, there was a progression of events that really got crazy if you aren't paying really close attention to it. In chapter 11, verse 1, we're in the first year of Darius, and Darius is the king of what? Medo-Persia, right? And the man in linen did what there in 11.1? Okay, so he rises to be an encouragement and a protection. Now, back up to chapter 10, which is where we're at right now, and he gives us another time factor in verse, uh, is it 13? Third year. Okay, third year of Cyrus, what the man in linen does what? What is he doing there? He's withstanding who? The prince of who? Persia. So, so we see in, in 11.1, in the first year of that Medo-Persian empire, he rose up to be a protection for him. But in the third year, he's now battling against them. Very interesting. And then he concludes that verse, uh, that line of thought in verse 20, where he says, but who's about to come? Greece. Okay, so what does that show to us? But is, is, is 11 talking about the human realm? 11.1, but 10 is talking about that. Remember, it's the man in linen that appeared. And what is the man in linen? Whether he's Jesus or an angel, he's what? He's a supernatural being. So this is spiritual warfare that's going on. So it's, it's declaring to you that events are happening on the earth, but there's spiritual war, warfare that's taking place. In the first year of the Medo-Persian Empire, the man in linen arose to be a protection and an encouragement to the Medo-Persians. Darius, 
know what I mean? And well, yeah, but when he mentions Darius, I'm just trying to show you that it's still the Medo-Persian Empire, right? And he's protecting them and being an encouragement to them in year one of their reign. But in year three of their reign, now what is he doing? He's battling against the, the prince of Persia. So in that same spiritual realm now, just two years later, He's, he's now being in opposition, but it's not the kind of opposition that crushes him, right? How long is it from the days of the third year of Cyrus until the Greek empire does come? He says, it's coming shortly, but, but it's like 200 years. So that kind of battle that we are introduced to there in, in Daniel 10, where he's fighting the prince of Persia, it's not the kind of a battle where he's going to crush him. It's the kind of a battle where he's holding him back. It's a restraining work. It's a battle that keeps them at bay for 200 years. Think of that. That's a spiritual warfare that's going on in the heavenly realm with Persia. Because if Persia and the Antichrist is left to do their own, their own affairs, what would happen with Persia? It would just keep getting bigger and bigger and more more powerful because it would be it would be untethered. It would be there would be no restrainer in place, and without a restrainer, then they would just take over and and absolutely pulverize the whole world in such a way that there would be nothing left that God would be able to fulfill His word through. Nebuchadnezzar? No, no, but recently. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was given to me by a soldier right after 9-11. Cool. And, and I sat next to the soldier, and we had the meetings conversation. He was coming back after being over there. Mm -hmm. But he said there was, I mean, he said it even smelled like sulfur. But, I mean, he, it's almost like he could feel that. Well, you know, there was that great big painting on the wall in the palace there of Nebuchadnezzar, of uh, Saddam Hussein receiving from Nebuchadnezzar the scepter of, of kingship, basically, for Babylon. And he saw himself as a reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. And so, yeah, so basically all I want you to see, all I really want you to see here is this man in linen is in a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle in this case that's revealed to us. It wasn't one that crushed Persia in the moment. He didn't just come in and wipe them out. He didn't just squash them like a bug. But what he does do is he keeps them at bay. It's a restraining work of power. And therefore, when he says Michael came to help him so that he would go then to speak to Daniel, it wasn't he was too weak to handle it. It was the work needed to go on. There was going to be 200 more years yet before Greece was going to be allowed to come. And before that, that power would rise up and subdue um, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. Very interesting, just a little insight there. Okay, so that's more spiritual warfare. Yes. Sure. Right. But unless I understand who that is, I don't understand the I and Daniel 11 and 1. Yes, you're right. 
so have we had the introduction either by name or title or inference of a new personage no well no we haven't i mean there's not been any statement that says gabriel that one that was here before or another angel spoke to me and i did such and such it just says a human hand touched me but there had been another human hand that had already there would already been another human appearance that had been given great detail uh, to us on, right? Yes. And who was that? Oh, well, there was a certain man in linen. Yeah, the man in linen. Then he refers to a hand Yeah. No. No, but a hand. But still, if another angel has not been introduced to us in the flow of thought, the if you actually structure this, right. you have to take so it back to that man in linen yeah. and just follow it through. Every reference yeah. then to anything that resembles a man who has already been described in great detail is that man. Okay. You know, I, we talked about this the last time you came back. Two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I was, I thought that too. I thought, I mean, I thought, I knew the certain man was Jesus, but then I that there was another hand, right, yeah. right. And there are commentaries who do that, but they, they give you no explanation as to why they insert another angel without their, it being introduced. There's no scriptural statement like there is in all the other cases. Every other case where a new angel is appearing, it says, and the angel said to this angel and this, and he appeared and there was one in the middle and there was one on the right and there was one, and they, they actually give you some information. This one just says, and the hand touched me. And so the what helped me was when you know we went to Revelation and, and then it said in, in on 17 after the vision that was just like him and when I saw him I fell at his feet as a dead man and this is John and a hand touched him yes. mm -hmm. and, and, and he touched and me and he, he stood laid his right hand upon yes me, saying, do not be afraid right exactly exactly what he says in this one he touches him and he and he literally says do not be afraid so it's a it is literally a tit for tat as you compare those two references of the man in linen and because there's not a new introduction in the grammatical flow of thought i i attribute everything where it mentions a man or someone of human appearance back to the man in linen that's already been described and not only that but if you go with the man in linen linen is talking to him he says up here and then he basically repeats himself he already says he was coming and he yeah he says here again he's coming so it's yeah the same person talking right and the flow of thought else. tells you it's the same guy exactly. otherwise you have to go back and forth insert some other angels and then go back to the man in linen and there and it, so the, it messes with the flow make it Jesus and, and he's you know all one person from the man in linen or the man in linen is a vision and somebody else is there but then all of that is the same other person yeah it would be an angel, but he doesn't really but it's just it doesn't flow well if you if you do that no, it, doesn't. it doesn't no it doesn't I just think the lot that's how the commentary some of them will say that they see the man in linen as the Christ and then oh, but there was an angel there that was right I've I've seen it. that that's that's exactly or, right right and what I did when I went back and reasoned it through was the flow of thought grammatically does not make sense if you interject a new personage there, a new angel or a new being. Uh, it only makes sense if you see the whole flow of thought. And when the other statements, all it's doing is identifying that he was like a man. He had a hand, right? The one with the face of a, of a human being. So he makes sure that you're understanding. He's speaking about that same man in linen who had all these other things that were described. Well, 
and you know what? Our translation may be slightly off because I know that there are words often that get translated for us that are total, they totally take your mind down a different track than what you should go down. So just always keep that in mind. English is, is fallible. And that's why we do our word studies. But also in this case, structuring would probably help you, although it's difficult to structure. But I do think you would come to an obvious conclusion. There has been no other being introduced. It has to be the same man. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Without saying a hand of an angel who appeared and he was standing to the right or to the left of the man in linen, exactly. and they don't do that. Right. They just say a hand touched him. It's clear that he doesn't. Obviously, he doesn't recognize him as Jesus, of course. You know, but so he's he says he looks like all the ways that he looks and he touches him there. Yeah. And he touches still like well, it's, it looks human. This, yeah. This vision looks like a human right. hand is what he sees. What's very interesting is now that you bring that up, I, I, I'm going to take the time to go. I know we're, we're beyond our time, but we're not going to, but if you have time to hang with me, what, let's go really quick into uh, page 48, where you looked at the word stars and there were three verses that we looked up. Um, let me see if I can find mine. Yeah, you looked at Job uh, 38, Revelation 1, and Revelation 9 at the top of page 48. And the word there was the word star. And what we had to do was try to come to an understanding of, the word, of what the word star could mean, right? Or does mean. What did you conclude about the word star? Well, the big one is the Revelation that flat out says the stars and the, and the angels of the seven churches. Okay. Angels of the seven, and so then you have to decide what are the what does it mean by angels of the of the of the churches, right? So stars and angels are being equated as being the same thing in the Revelation, mm -hmm. right? And if it's thinking of an angel, what does it mean by the word angel? Definition wise, what can an angel be? So what do you see about angel uh, angels and stars in Job thirty eight? What are the what are the angels there? So we're speaking of angel angels, real angels who are heavenly beings, right? That float around in the heavenly realm, Job 38. Okay, the next one though is in Revelation 1. You're going to read 16, really 16 all the way to 20. You have to go all the way down. I don't know if she, uh, well, she probably did. Yes, she did. Good. So uh, in verse, somebody read verse 16, Revelation 1, 16. Okay, I might have this wrong, do I? 60. And then go down to 20, go down to 20. For the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands. Okay, so the lampstands are the churches. Describe what a church is, in this case, a physical location on the earth filled with people who attend that church body, right? So the lampstands represent physical something on earth. And what is what did it say about the 
stars? The stars are the angels of those what? Of those churches. Okay, so go then to the very next verse in the let. I think it's in, uh, would it be two? Two one. What does he say? Oh, he's going to write, John is going to write a letter to an angel. So who do you think that angel is? It's an angel that has something to do with that physical church. It's, it's got to be human, right? Are, are you following me? There you go. It's either a leader, a pastor, an elder. It's somebody, because he, John is told, John, write a letter to that angel of that church and then he and he says that repeatedly now write a letter to this church now write a letter to this church now write a letter to this church and every one of them he says to the angel of this church write to the angel of this church write he's writing physical letters and what are those physical letters going to be done what's going to happen to those physical letters what was done with those physical letters they were mailed. They were sent on the circuit. They had an actual, you're going to learn all this later. They actually had a circuit route that letters traveled through. And those letters would go to those congregations. And the angels of those churches would stand before their congregation and read them. Good question. What does it mean to be an angel? There you go. The word angel simply means messenger or light bearer. So if you're going to read the message a light bearer mm -hmm. and a messenger. Okay, so angels are messengers. Heavenly angels are messengers, yes, but are there messengers on the earth as well? According to Revelation 1, whoever is the angel over the churches is the light bearer or the message giver of, the, of that which God is going to dictate to John and John is gonna write it down and send it to them. So to, Kay kind of cut us short there. Right. Hosts can be angels. It can be people. It can be the church. It can be the Jews. <laughs> so what does that mean for you as an inductive student? What, what rules? You got to be careful. And what rules for your interpretation? Context. Context rules for interpretation. In this case, the context tells you who the angels are. Somebody's going to read that letter to their congregation at that church. So it can't be a heavenly being that's being written to. It has to be somebody physical because it's going to be, it's a letter being written to them. Okay. So what we've now learned is angels can be heavenly beings. Angels can also be pastors of a church or someone along those lines, right? Um, then there's another one in Revelation 9. Is that the next one we did? Yeah, Revelation 9, 1. Those, those stars or those angels are who? They're fallen angels. So stars and angels kind of can go synonymously back and forth. They, they, they both kind of have similar meanings. One is a light giver or a light bearer, right? One that illuminates or shines and the other one is the one who gives forth a message and is also a light bearer so they're kind of very similar angels and stars um, in revelation 12 4 a third of those stars are swept away so now we have not only stars and angels but sometimes those stars and angels can be fallen angels good angels and bad angels but you guess what rules for interpretation 
context. So you have to determine, is it a good angel or a bad angel? Just because it says an angel doesn't make them good, right? He's no angel, <laughs> all right? Well, there's two events. One of them happened pre, another one is going to happen at the end with the with the revelation. There have been two. Yes. Yes. A third of the stars being swept out of heaven has already happened. Then there's another event when Michael and his angels will cast those angels that have been already cast out are going to be cast down to the earth. Fallen. But they still have access into the heavenly realm because so does Satan. That's right. And he go and he goes to the presence of God to get permission. Right. So we know that the angels have left their natural abode, the abode that God had given to them in their position. We saw that when we looked in at Ezekiel 38 and Isaiah 14. And I gave you a worksheet to take home because this is really cool. This worksheet I get, I've given out and I'll send it by mail for the rest of you. When you go through this part, what you're going to see is this king of Tyre and, and who he's described as. And he is a literal king. And then it switches in the second half and it speaks about Satan as being that king of Tyre. And I want you to see the distinction of, in the flow of thought, how he goes from being the physical man to being the spiritual uh, force behind the man. Okay? Because then it'll make it much more clear just laying it side by side in columns like this. It, it, otherwise, it's a little bit complicated the first few times you go through it. Um, and then Isaiah 14 supports it, right? All right. So I wish we had more time. Um, here's another little uh, uh, kink in your, or not in your whatever, right? Uh, Revelation 22, 16, you know what Jesus is called? Jesus is called the bright morning star. Oops. So you've got fallen angels who are stars and Jesus who's the star. So do you see how the word star is simply a descriptive word? It does not identify a single entity. It's a description of an entity. Uh, 22, 16. Jesus is called the bright morning star. fell oh yeah there's the morning stars of yes that's saying at creation right they were there present to watch creation occur so when did the angels get created well somewhere in the creation days and it was probably at the very beginning when god began the creation work yeah yeah but it says they were present and they and they sang at the as they watch god create so they were there to watch god in the creation work but it doesn't really give us a, any insight as to exactly when they were created so we have to kind of guess at that okay um so jesus is a morning star satan is also called the morning star we saw that in either ezekiel or isaiah right he was called the morning star so again the morning star you have to be careful. Which morning star is it? Is it the morning star or the bright morning star? <laughs> and is it speaking in the context of it about Jesus or is it speaking it about Satan? It can be both. So again, con so all I'm trying to do here is to say to you in your study 
and reading in scripture, when it comes to the word angels and to the word stars, it can be sometimes it's men, sometimes it's angels, sometimes it's fallen angels, sometimes it's Satan, but sometimes it's even Jesus. Sometimes stars are referred to the kings who rule. They're referred to as stars. Uh, it, also, they're, they're right, they're um, um, warriors who are mighty are called stars. So context rules for con interpretation on that. I think it was a good lesson to see that. No, it doesn't. She wants you to conclude that stars she does. She did. And I was sad about that, especially with that revelation one. When we get into revelation, it's going to be a no-brainer for you. You're going to see it for yourself because when they're writing a letter to that person, whoever that star is, they're receiving that letter and it's going to be read. And then it says, and he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a letter written to the churches that the people hear. And so it's not a letter written in a, in a symbolic way to the heavenly host. It's a physical letter written by John to go to the angels of the churches. Okay. All right. Maybe she wants to test you. It was just a test. <laughs> All right. Well, we don't have time to go into the prayer warrior part, but that part, I think we covered it real thoroughly already once. Um, just shows us the power of prayer in, in the spiritual realm. I will send out for you if I can find it. I found a link that was done by Discover the Book Ministry on spiritual warfare that he did, I thought was really good. And he talks about prayer in warfare um, and how important it is. Um, but in the end of it, what we see when we looked at it from that perspective is that God is the one that all things are in uh subjection under the feet of Jesus, right? That God has seated you and I in Christ Jesus, right? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So because we are seated with him, we are above the angels, right? And Hebrews actually will, will also teach you that we are above the angels. They are come to, to be servants to us, although they're, they're mightier and more powerful than we are. If they wanted to, they could smite us in a, in a nanosecond. But who holds that all in check? God, who is sovereign and all-knowing. If this does not make you worship the Lord and just be so thankful that, that the position we have, because listen, if you are not in Christ, you are subject and vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. And they will, they will do their best, but they are limited too. Even there, there's limitations that God places on, on spiritual warfare that goes on even in the life of an unbeliever. God is still in control of that as well. Um, we taught, we looked at Elijah who prayed first that it wouldn't rain. And then he prayed it would rain and both occurred. It just talks about the prayers of a righteous man are, are effective, right? Um, we see the man in linen come in responding to Daniel's prayer, calling him a man of high esteem. His prayer life has a lot to do with that title, man of esteem. Um, we see Daniel, when he did pray in, chap in chapter 9, 18 and 19, we see that he prayed in humility and reverence to God. We see that God's name is what he desired to have uh, glorified. So that was his goal. goal, was to glorify the name of God. And also that God's word would be accomplished. Even though the words that he had been told were devastating to him as far as his people, the things that they would have to go 
through. Daniel submitted to that, that word was God's and that God was being good, that he trusted God in that. Um, uh, he says, to you and I, I urge that prayers be made to God, uh, because God desires that all men be saved, right? In 1 Timothy 2. Our struggle, this is one of our favorite verses for this, Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual for forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, in chapter 6, 13, he says, take up the armor of God. Because that's where you're protected. If you're not under the armor of God and underneath the protection of God, then you're much more vulnerable. And even as Christians, when we quench the spirit and we walk outside of our um, assigned abode with God ourselves, then the attacks can come and we can be um, subjected to things. Um, Pray at all times in the spirit. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Boy, I tell you what, for those of you who are prayer warriors by calling, and, and there's some of us who are, who are that, not me, but uh, many of you, and I wish I were in a way, I, but my, God gave me this instead, right? But those who, have, who are prayer warriors, you are so highly valued by God. There is no greater calling as far as I can see than to be the one who stands in the gap in prayer for the for the saints. Oh, I didn't get to see it. No, I didn't. I mean, it is powerful. Oh, how wonderful. Yes, and she prayed for her husband for so long. Yep. Yeah, I know she did. She prayed and prayed and prayed for her husband for a long time. I bet it was fantastic. Yeah, I've watched, you know, Brenda's been one of my students for so many years. And uh, yeah, I, I heard her prayers for her husband over and over and watched her being really faithful in that all those years. It's amazing. But here's the, here's the bottom line, Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through Christ. So you and I do win this battle. And as scary as the angels can sound on the one hand, on the other hand, they are, they are totally being restrained in the same way that we see the restraining work of the man in linen with the, with the prince of Persia. He didn't crush him, but he restrained him. And there's a restraining work that God does deliberately in order to prolong things. Why do you think he was restraining him? He had 200 years to go. Why did he have to wait for 200 years? Why not destroy him that moment three, three years in and move on? Greece had to have time to fulfill the, the promises that God had to accomplish through them. The, the, the rather small horn, for one thing, who shows up to be an example. And through Daniel, the prophet who speaks of him, God, God says, and just like in the days of Daniel, so, so shall these things be. So what we now, what we know is, a lot of the restraining work in the spiritual realm of, of battles has to do with waiting for the appointed time. It's God has an appointed time. And if it happens too soon, it doesn't fulfill what God has said. And so he waits for the appointed time. And one of the most important things to God is that all men be saved. So he's waiting for men to come into salvation. What looks like the slowness of God in his work 
is really his patience that others would come into faith. So, you know, one, one, one verse is, and I'm not sure if it's in, but it, that verse she didn't bring up, but um, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers mm -hmm. because some have entertained angels unaware. Mm -hmm. That's right. Isn't that an interesting yeah. thought? So they, mm -hmm. How many of us have entertained angels and didn't know it? I hope I didn't serve burnt toast or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for your hard work. And I know we had to really rush through that last little part, but I think the spiritual warfare was really interesting that Daniel's you know, the flow of thought here brings that up and really presents that to us. Clearly, it was a message God wanted Daniel to know so he would be encouraged and comforted knowing that Michael and the angels and, and the man in linen himself was standing there doing warfare on behalf of all of humanity. And that Daniel did not have to worry because God was going to do exactly as he said he would do. Again, fulfilling it. All right. Thank you so much. Bye, you guys. <laughs> Hope you didn't fall asleep there. <laughs>